Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know that fresh produce is the best produce. That's why at Kroger, we invest in local farmers to bring you seasonal picks that taste fresh from the farm good, like sweet corn, refreshing watermelon, and juicy peaches. So whether you're a delivery lover, a picker-upper, or you shop in-store, your local produce always tastes 100% fresh, or you get a 100% refund guaranteed. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver. And today we will look at the shocking upset from Saturday afternoon in in the UK. We will have another Q&A session. I will make my prediction on the upcoming super fight between Javante Tank Davis and Ryan Garcia. And I will give my part three, the final part of my second greatest fight of the last 45 years, historical overview on Floyd Mayweather. But before we begin, once again, I want to hammer to the listeners out there, the Patreon-only exclusive podcast I've been doing monthly, The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali in which I take a look at the 10 greatest fights in Muhammad Ali's career. I'm about to record the third episode, his November 1966 virtuoso performance, one of the greatest performances by any heavyweight in the history of boxing against Cleveland Williams. Part one was his first round knockout of Sonny Liston, May of 1965. Part two was his November 1965 12-round one-sided beating of Floyd Patterson. What I do with each episode, for those who haven't subscribed to the Patreon yet, for an additional $5 per month, you will hear me tell you guys the timestamp on the YouTube channel, um, Vintage Boxing. I give you the timestamp, the timestamp, what, what time on the footage that we will start Watching the fight, I tell you to mute it. And then from that moment on, when the fight begins, I re-announce the fight. It's a rebroadcast. It's me announcing each fight in its entirety. And I have to uh, let let everybody know that um, it's been a wonderful experience uh, revisiting these fights. And I also give um historical overview of what's going on at the time. As told to me by my father, who, when I was a child, would always, a young adult teenager, he would always tell me what was going on in Muhammad Ali's life, what was going on in the world, before and after each one of his major fights in the 1960s and 1970s. So, the life and times of Muhammad Ali, 
$5 per month. And I'm telling you, you get your bang for your buck. All right. Now, on to the huge upset from Saturday. And now, the leading contender, in my opinion, for upset of the year. You had one of the top contenders for all the heavyweight championships, Joe Joyce, going into Saturday in a WBO, WBOGUS interim title fight, which is bullshit. The real WBO champion is none other than Alexander Usyk. This elimination of, I mean, not elimination, this, uh, how are you going to put up a interim title when the champion is not injured? Man, get that bullshit the fuck out of here. Anyway, for the WBOGUS interim title, to be the mandatory for the WBA against Alexander Usyk. We had Joe Joyce, the overwhelming favorite, against the robotic brawler, Jilei Zhang. Now, Jilei Zhang's got power in both hands. He's got a, a hard left cross and a booming right hook, but he fights like a fucking robot. And Joe Joyce showed the world why... He better go and get a pay, a big payday as soon as he can because he has no defense whatsoever. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, we see a lack of defense in boxing. This is why fighters like Shakur Stevenson, Sonny Edwards, and Dev, Devin Haney stand heads and shoulders above all these other fighters because they defend well. They're great defensive fighters. Joe Joyce fought like a heavyweight Arturo Gaddy, Gaddy Saturday in the UK. And he couldn't avoid those left crosses and right hooks. Zhang fights like a robot. And he was landing at will, and he obliterated Joyce's face. And Mark and this announcing team, when they had Mark Kriegel and Tim Bradley, two of the all-time worst Color commentators announcing this fight and Mark Kriegel going Google for Coke, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over, oh, Joe Joyce, what a chin. The man has a great chin. Motherfucker. So what if he has a great chin? The man has no defense whatsoever. Yes, he's got a very good left jab and, he's, and he throws combinations, but he can't defend. Even if he would have found a way to beat Jang, he would have been food for Usyk, for a Deontay Wilder, for a Tyson Fury. Joe Joyce took a beating, and I gave Zhang the first two rounds. I gave Joy, uh, Joyce the third round. I gave Zhang four and five because even though Joyce from rounds three to five was throwing, was throwing a lot of punches, he couldn't avoid Zhang's power, Zhang's power shots, and Zhang... Chang is no special fighter. He, he th- I mean, yes, he's got power, but he's six foot six, two eighty. He's not the fastest of heavyweights, and he couldn't miss. Joe Joyce nose was broken, bloodied, and his right eye was completely closed because he kept getting hit by left cross after left cross. Joe Joyce needs to. Seriously contemplate retirement. He took a lot of damage. For all we know, that left eye could be damaged for life. 
Now Zhang becomes a mandatory for Usyk. Usyk will beat this guy from pillar to post. This guy is a one-trick pony. He's a brawler. And Joy should be ashamed of himself for the way he fought against Zhang. He lost to a guy who's not on his level, but you know what? Maybe Joyce wasn't as good as we thought. Man, um, if I was Bob Arum, and if Joyce is able to come back and fight in the next six months to a year, I'd put him in the ring with Jared Big Baby Anderson. It'd be a nice win on Joyce's record. I don't think Zhang will fight uh, Anderson now because now he's going to sit back and wait for a title opportunity against Usyk. <laughs> Um, Usyk and Fury will beat the living hell out of Jalei Zhang. Anyway, uh, nice victory for Zhang. My new upset of the year. It's gonna take a, it's gonna take a miracle for somebody to beat this upset of the year. Joe Joyce should seriously contemplate retirement because it's only going to get worse for him. He took the type of beating that ruins a career, and he cannot defend against anybody. And once again. The biggest problem in boxing is the biggest problem in the NBA. The lack of defense is pathetic. Now on to my prediction. This upcoming Saturday night, Javante Tank Davis against Ryan Garcia at a catch weight, I believe 136 pounds. It's not for any titles, but the winner will be in line for another major fight. Pay-per-view Saturday night. This is how I see it going down. For the first six rounds, I see Garcia moving, using his jab, using his superior height and um, reach advantage to win four of the first six rounds. And Garcia's going to look good. And you're going to be like, oh, wow, he's got a shot. Between round 7 and 10, it could be round 7, it could be round 10. Javante is going to land either a spectacular hook or uppercut that puts Garcia to sleep. So I'm saying Tank Davis by knockout between round 7 and 10, it's going to be either a hook or an uppercut. My prediction for Saturday night. And now on to the Ask Rob Silver portion, Q&A portion of the podcast. Let me get the, and by the way, if you want your answers, your questions answered on the podcast, go to Twitter, hashtag Ask Rob Silver. And I'll answer questions about anything, as you'll see from the questions that will be given to me right now. All right, here we go. First question is from... LL School K, will you ever do an Al Green tribute? I'm sorry, my uh, microphone had gotten disconnected. Will I ever do an Al Green tribute? I do a pod, another podcast in which I talk about music. If you want to know about the podcast, hit me up on Twitter, ask Rob Silver, DM me, just, 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 and I'll answer on Twitter. I'll let you know what the the music podcast I do the whole nine. I don't like to talk about other podcasts. On this podcast But in short LL No I will never do a podcast on Al Green When it comes to my music podcast That I do on another platform Because uh, 
I'm not passionate about Al Green. And if I'm not passionate about an artist, I'm not going to do a tribute for that artist. All right, LL has another question. You can bring three back to life. There are 16 fighters listed here. Which three would I bring back to life? Well, it won't be Arturo Gatti, that fucking non-defensive piece of shit. Won't be Diego Corrales, even though he died young in a car accident on my birthday. May 7th, 2007, exactly two years after the day he beat Diego Castillo Castillo in the greatest fight of the 21st century. Gennaro Hernandez died way too young. Hector Camacho, uh, no. Joe Frazier, uh, Frazier and Ali both lived long lives. Marvelous Marvin Hagler, still we don't know the reason why he died. Sugar Ray Robinson died of Alzheimer's. He was he was basically a vegetable when he died. Vernon Forrest died way too young, trying to protect his godson. Pernell Whitaker died way too young, crossing a highway in Virginia. Joe Lewis was penniless then old when he died. Salvador Sanchez died way too young, 24 years old in a tragic car accident in Mexico. Alexis Arguello, I believe, was murdered by the Nicaraguan government. I don't give a damn what you so-called boxing insiders who have DM me and said, oh no, Arguello was depressed at the time. He, he did kill himself. Shut the fuck up. The Nicaraguan government killed Alexis Arguello. Rocky Marciano, I could care less. Emmanuel Stewart, and that was a death that still we still feel today in the sport of boxing because the Kronk Gym hasn't been the same since Manny Stewart died. I'm going to give you the three that I wish were still alive. Johnny Tapia, because my mother loved Johnny Tapia, because Johnny Tapia reminded him, reminded my mother of him, my father. Johnny Tapia has a lot of the same mannerisms, facial expressions, the way he talks similar to my father. That's one. I wish Pernell Whitaker was still alive because he's the type of mind he had started training. Matter of fact, he was training Zab Judah late in Zab Judah's career. I think Pernell Whitaker would have been, would have eventually become a great trainer. It's unfortunate that he died way too young. And the third person on this list that I wish was still alive was Emmanuel Stewart because the sport is lacking that crunk gym influence in the sport, which Emmanuel Stewart brought to the table in the 1970s and up until his death was still a major factor as he was training Vladimir Klitschko at the time of his death. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. 
What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, thanks a lot, LL. Mark Stoy McAhill asks, have you seen Fresh Dress? No, I have never seen that. Can you remember seeing when hip-hop fashion went mainstream from the South Bronx to the rest of the United States? All right, let me tell you something, Mark. South Bronx hip-hop fashion was played, was played out. It wasn't as great as people remember. Look at the movie Beat Street. Okay, you had the little caps, you had the leather jackets, the leather vests, you had the gloves with the holes in them, you had the either the pro kids or the converse. Um, when you see New Edition, when they first came onto the stage in 1983, the she, the she gives me a bang, they're wearing a lot of the South Bronx type designs. Um, it didn't age well. Hip hop fashion exploded. And I'll tell you why, because I started attending high school in 1983 in at the High School Graphic Communication Arts, which is in Hell's Kitchen, 49th Street and 10th Avenue. And there you had kids from all over the five boroughs attend that high school. And I tell you, I'll tell you what set the trend for hip hop fashion. It wasn't the original South Bronx leather jackets and leather pants and leather vests and the gloves with the holes in them and the and the caps and the pro kids and the converse no no it was the cats from Bedford Stuyvesant the cats from South Jamaica Queens the cats from Jamaica Queens the cats from Long Island City King Queensbridge etc when i saw how they were dressed Oh, and also, I can't, and I grew up in the South Bronx, but cats from Harlem. You had all of these come together, and you took the best from each section of the city, and you set yourself up. South Bronx was played out by the time I attended high school. You didn't want to look like that, and you saw some kids like that. You didn't want to look like that. You wanted to look like the cats from Harlem that were wearing the sheepskins, and the 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 the, Sher- the Sherlands, or the cats from Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, who were uh, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, Red Hook, Brooklyn, Bushwick, Brooklyn, that were wearing the leather bombers. You wanted to look like the cats from Jamaica Queens, Queensbridge, Long Island City, Jamaica Queens, South Jamaica. They were wearing the Adidas. They were wearing the Lee Lee jeans, the Levi jeans. Harlem cats were also wearing the starter jackets, as were cats from Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, and, of course, Jamaica, Queens. When I started attending High School Graphic Communication Arts in 1983, I took from each section of New York City, each borough that I saw, and that's how I set my clothing up. I made sure, because I was working, we didn't have a lot of money, so I started working at 14, 
and I would use my money as I saved my money to go buy a New York Mets starter jacket, to go buy an Atlanta Braves starter jacket, to go buy a Detroit Tigers starter jacket. And I'd buy uh, Lee jeans in all different colors, black, blue, brown, uh, never white. To me, that was always feminine. And the sneakers I wore, never bought a pair of Adidas. Never bought, bought a pair of Nike. Um, it was, I was still wearing uh, Converse until 1985 when I started buying Reeboks and, uh, what you call it? God damn it, it was New Balance. New Balance and, and Reeboks. And the Reebok sneakers I used to love wearing were the all white or all black leather that was real comfortable. Love those sneakers. So I don't, I don't give the South Bronx credit when it comes to fashion. Now, of course, when it came to breakdancing, when it came to the original hip-hop, no doubt. Rapping, graffiti, the whole nine. But when it comes to dress, it was the cats from Harlem. It was the cats from Bedford-Stuyvesant, from Red Hook, from Fort Greene, from South Jamaica, Jamaica, Queens, Long Island City, Queensbridge, etc. Those were the trendsetters in hip-hop fashion. All right. Um, LL School K asked, who was behind Stop and Frisk? Was it Giuliani or Bloomberg? And did it make New York safer from my life experience? No. Uh, Giuliani was, as soon as he became mayor, when he took over office January 1st, 1994, he sent his Gestapo tactics out and he sent the NYPD out to invade homes where they thought there was drug use going on um I was stopped eight times in the street by walking between 1994 and 2001 because of this bastard Giuliani's stop and frisk tactics right all eight times it was for naught because all I had in my goddamn bag were either school books because I was going to undergrad or graduate school or paperwork from work at as at the time I was working in, in foster care all eight times I was stopped all eight times I lodged a complaint with the local precinct most of them most of them was the 40th precinct in the South Bronx all fell on dead ears right never got any type of hearing despite the fact that for eight all eight times they found nothing. I was illegally frisked. I was illegally stopped because, oh, I fit the description. Get that racist shit the fuck out of here. Yeah, it was Rudy Giuliani and Bloomberg doubled down on it. That piece of shit. All right. The last the last good mayor the uh, New York City had was uh, David Dinkins. All right. LL asked, I've been checking out baseball lately. I want to know from your... From you, what teams are the best right now in your opinion? LL, I stopped watching team sports last fall. My mother almost died, and I made a decision right then and there that I no longer was going to watch the NBA, Major League Baseball, or the NFL. Unnecessary stress. There's more things important, like my lady, like my nephew, like my mother. <coughs> Excuse me. So I couldn't tell you. I... Don't follow baseball. LL, you you live in Chicago. Just follow your White Sox. Stick with the White Sox. All right? 
that that that's all I can. I don't even know what the White Sox are doing. White Sox are doing this year, but stick with your White Sox. You know what I mean? Why go and follow a team because they're good? Follow the team because you grew up watching them. You know, you told me the other day how Frank Thomas made you uh, uh, watch baseball. Frank Thomas, the greatest Chicago White Sox player I ever saw. All right, so those are I got one final question. No, two final questions. Malcolm Excellent ask. I don't know if you covered this yet, but who are your top five pound for pound fighters out right now? Well, you know what, Malcolm? I'm going to do you five better. I'm going to give you my top 10 pound for pound fighters in the world today. Number 10, the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. The first undisputed lightweight champion in 30 years. Devin Haney is my number 10 pound for pound for pound fighter. Devin Haney, number 10, the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. Number 9 is a two alphabet belt holder at 122 pounds. Cool boy Stephen Fulton out of Philadelphia, who in July will face someone I will talk about later on in my top 10. Number nine, Stephen Cool Boy Fulton. Number 10, David ha- Devin Haney. Number eight is none other than, let me make sure I get this right. Who's my number eight? Oh, I had this. I had I had him at seven. God damn, early signs of motherfucking dementia. Okay, all right, okay. Number eight. Oh, man, I'm forgetting. I know my top five off the top of my head. Okay, all right. Number eight, Canelo. Saul Canelo Alvarez, who a lot of people had as their number one pound for pound last year. Well, he's fallen to eight on my list. And he's never been my number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world. Number eight, Canelo, the undisputed super middleweight champion of the world, who's fighting a stiff on my birthday in John Ryder. That's number eight. Number seven, Tyson Fury, the recognized heavyweight champion of the world. In my opinion, he's the man you have to beat. I know Usyk has three of the four alphabet soup title belts, but in my opinion, Tyson Fury is the rightful heir to the heavyweight championship of the world. So number seven, Tyson Fury. Number six, Dimitri Baval, the best light heavyweight on the planet. We will see if he fights better BF next or gets that rematch with Canelo. Now my top five, Malcolm. Number five, the best defensive fighter in the in the world, on the planet, the best defensive fighter since Floyd Mayweather, the subject of the historical overview and my second greatest fighter last 45 years later on, Floyd Mayweather. Number five pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world, Shakur Stevenson. You saw him last week. He's He stands right in front of you, and like a Purnell with a girl, Floyd Mayweather, he'll stand right in front of you, and you can't touch him with a 10-foot pole. Beautiful counterpuncher. Now, some clown that I follow, he follows me on Twitter, this clown claimed that he saw a glitch in Shakur Stevenson when he throws his left cross. Motherfucker, you ain't see shit. You don't like Shakur Stevenson, so you look for excuses to belittle him. Shakur Stevenson is the best defensive fighter in the sport. He is the type of fighter my father taught me to love. If my father were alive today, he'd be in love with Shakur Stevenson. 
So Shakur is my number five. Number four, Alexander Usyk, holder of three alphabet titles, former cruiserweight, undisputed champion of the world, and for some ungodly reason, Tyson Fury will not fight him, will not give him his fair due. We will see what Usyk's next plan is. If it's Zhang, that'll be a laughable as he beat Zhang from pillar to post if they were fought. So number four, Alexander Usyk, my pound for pound list. Number three, I've got Terrence Crawford. And the only reason he's as low as three is because the man at welterweight is Errol Spence, and I got him in number two, and hopefully number two fights number three sometime this year. We will see what happens, because to be honest with you, there's nobody else for these guys to fight at 147 but each other. You got the second best fighter on my list, Errol Spence, and the third best fighter on my list in Terrence Crawford. They should fight each other. Number one, who will fight Stephen Coolboy Fulton in July? The best fighter in the world that is not even close. The Japanese version of Thomas Hearns, Nayona, Nayoa Monster Inoue, who masters every punch in the book. He's got the best jab in the sport. He's got the best right cross in the sport. He might have the best left hook in the sport. The man's a beast. The best fighter in the world, Nayoa Inoue. Malcolm, I hope that satisfies your question. And now the final question from the Ask Rob Silver segment of the podcast comes from Jesus Salas. And Jesus gives a list of who he considers the most beautiful women from the 1950s to the 1910s. He's got Sophia Loren in the 1950s, Raquel Welch, 1960s, Pam Grin, 1970s, Edith, Edith Edith Chacon, the 80s, Salma Hayek, the 90s, Sofia Vergara, the 2000s, and Scarlett Johansson, the 2010s. Well, let me give you my list. 1950s, in my opinion, was Dorothy Dandridge, a stunning beauty, right? Go see Carmen Jones, the original Carmen Jones, co-star Harry Belafonte, and you'll see why I think she was the most beautiful woman of the 1950s. The most beautiful woman in the 1960s, in my opinion. I gotta I gotta go back now. Hold on. Who? Oh, Tammy Terrell. Tammy Terrell, was, who died way too young. Tammy Terrell, in my opinion, was the most beautiful woman of the 1960s. Most beautiful woman of the 1970s, in my opinion, was Jane Kennedy, former beauty queen and the first black female to be a uh, member of a post and pregame show in the NFL today on CBS. Jane Kennedy, in my opinion, the most beautiful woman of the 1970s. The most beautiful woman of the 1980s, in my opinion, was Vanity, who might be the most beautiful woman that ever lived. She's on the short list, in my opinion. The most beautiful woman of the 1990s was Nia Long, in my opinion. The most beautiful woman of between 2000 and 2009. Hmm. I'm going to revisit that in a second. 2010s, in my, in my opinion, was Nicki Minaj. Love Nicki Minaj, but then again, I am partial to Trini women. Uh, but Nikki's got it all, beautiful face, beautiful ass, beautiful legs, beautiful tatas, beautiful smile. 
From 2000 to 2009, who is my most beautiful woman between 2000 and 2009? Why am I drawing a fucking blank? Hmm. I don't want to say Mia Long again. Who? You know what? I'm going to have to leave that blank because right now, early signs of dementia is kicking in. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, LL. Thank you, Mark. All great questions. And now on to my final part of my historical overview of my second greatest fighter of the last 45 years, Floyd Mayweather. Now, for my final part of my historical overview of Floyd Mayweather's career, I am going to freestyle, meaning I'm going to open up his career record. And what I'm going to do is just give you a brief synopsis of the rest of his career, starting with his April 8th, 2006 fight. In Las Vegas versus Zab Judah for Zab Judah's IBF welterweight championship. Now, this was a bullshit title reign by Zab Judah. Zab Judah had lost the undisputed welterweight championship of the world a few months earlier in January 2006, a fight I attended in which Carlos Baldemir mopped the floor with his ass for the second half of the fight. Baldemir won the Undisputed Heavyweight Championship of the World, but the IBF, and these are these damn criminal cartels, these alphabet super organizations, refuse to sanction Baldemir as the champion and kept Judah as the champion despite the fact that Judah got his ass kicked. So Floyd fought Zab Judah April of 2006 for... The bogus IBF championship, all right? All of these sanctioning bodies are criminal organizations, but you know what? I digress. April 8th, 2006, first four rounds, Zab gave Floyd difficulty, and he even hurt Floyd early in the fight. But beginning in round five, Floyd began to dominate, and despite an in-ring brawl that occurred in the 10th round, between Zab Judah, Roger Mayweather, Floyd's trainer, and both camps. Cooler heads finally prevailed, and Floyd swept the last eight rounds to win by a large unanimous decision. Um, then, then in November of 2006, Floyd fought Carlos Baldemir and won every second of every round, totally dominating the Argentinian brawler, and then Floyd finally became the linear welterweight champion of the world. After beating Carlos Baldemir, Floyd stepped up to fight Oscar De La Hoya for Oscar De La Hoya's WBC Junior Middleweight Championship, Super Welterweight Championship, whatever you want to call it. And this was Floyd's toughest fight, in my opinion, of his career up until that point. This was a chess match. Um, and by the way, this set the pay-per-view record for most buys by any fight. 2.4 million buys. Oscar showing once again that he's still a great draw. And this was the passing of the torch. This was Oscar, the number one man in boxing as far as pay-per-view as pay-per-view uh, buys. As far as being the number one marketable athlete in the sport. 
it was a passing of the torch as now Floyd, after beating Oscar in a very difficult 12-round fight in which Floyd had to come on strong at the end to eke out the decision. I had it seven rounds to five, Floyd, but Oscar, despite being past his prime for the hell of a fight, I thought if Oscar would have utilized his left jab more, he might have pulled it out, but Floyd, doing what Floyd does, coming down the stretch to win a decision, and it was not an easy decision. When the decision was read, there was worry in both Floyd and Oscar's faces. We didn't know who was going to win that fight. It wasn't one of Floyd's most dominant performances, but he did enough to win. Then on December 8th, 2007, he fought Ricky Hatton. Ricky Hatton, the, the junior welterweight champion of the world, the, the linear junior welterweight champion, moved up to face the linear welterweight champion in Floyd Mayweather. And Floyd, Ricky Hatton has a had a... Boom Boom Mancini type style in which he got inside, he tried to hold you and, and hit you. Floyd was able to negate that with his superior defense and counterpunching and finally knocked out Hatton in the 10th round to rain, retain his title. Then, when everybody was talking about a Manny Pacquiao-Floyd Mayweather fight, Floyd retired said that he was going to focus on Mayweather promotions, a promotional uh, venue that he had begun with Al Heyman, his new advisor. Two years later, he came out of retirement to face one Manuel Marquez as a test run for a fight with the great Manny Pacquiao. Pacquiao had struggled in three fights versus one Manuel Marquez. So what Floyd did was he wanted to show everybody that he wasn't going to struggle with one Manuel Marquez. And um, sorry about that noise. I came from my computer. Um, free up storage space. Yeah, I will. I will relax. <laughs> anyway, back to the back to the fight against one man, one Manuel Marquez. I took my beloved son, who had who at the time was 17 years old and had just entered his senior year in high school to see the one Manuel Marquez Floyd Mayweather fight at the Times Square AMC movie theater on 42nd Street between 8th and Broadway. And we had a beautiful time as Floyd totally dominated Marquez, dropped them with his signature uh, counter right cross, won damn near every second of every round, to win a convincing 12-round decision over one Manuel Marquez. And then negotiations for a fight with Manny began, and the first of many failed negotiations as Manny refused to take a blood test, which would be required to see if he was using steroids, if he was a PED user, because that was the rumor going around. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to lie to you. Manny Pacquiao for years was thought of using PEDs. He was accused of using PEDs. Look at his physique at that point in time. He was chiseled like a young Bruce Lee. Uh, that fight did not occur, and instead he fought Shane Mosley on May 1st, 2010. Shane rocked. Floyd early in the fight. Floyd had to survive. Floyd was hurt badly. Probably the worst he ever was hurt in his career. Floyd recuperated, dominated for the next seven, eight rounds to win a 
a convincing unanimous decision. Then the infamous fight, September 17, 2011, against Victor Ortiz, in which Victor Ortiz was headbutting Floyd out of frustration. During a break, referee Joe Cortez took a point away from Ortiz, and then Ortiz went to shake Floyd's hand, and Floyd dropped him, knocked him out. And people um, people accused Floyd of cheating. Floyd didn't cheat. It's protect yourself at all times. Victor Ortiz was cheating and then tried to uh, make amends by asking Floyd for a handshake, and Floyd gave him a beautiful combination to knock him the fuck out. Left hook, right cross, good night. Then after knocking out Victor Ortiz, Floyd stepped up to face Miguel Cotto, May 5th, 2012, and once again, a very tough fight for Floyd. If you notice, Floyd's toughest fights all seem to happen at junior middleweight, super welterweight. Cotto was the WBA super welterweight champion, and Cotto gave Floyd hell, even busted Floyd's lip. But Floyd came on strong at the end to win a convincing unanimous decision. Then, for someone, once again, the Pacquiao fight was not be, was not able to be made because Pacquiao in 2012 first lost a controversial decision to Timothy Bradley and then got knocked out by one Manuel Marquez in their fourth and final fight. So, that fight wasn't going to happen anytime soon, so instead... Floyd faced the overmatch Robert Guerrero May 4th, 2013. For Floyd won every second of every round in a virtuoso performance. Robert Guerrero had no business fighting Floyd that night, but anyway. And then September 14th, 2013, Floyd fought the young up-and-coming Canelo Alvarez. Alvarez was the WBC uh, Super Welterweight Champion. Floyd was the reigning WBA uh, Super Welterweight Championship. In the unification fight, Floyd completely dominated and mastered Canelo Alvarez in a virtuoso performance. He undressed Canelo. He showed everybody the blueprint how to beat Canelo. Counterpunching with master defense. And now at this point in time, ladies and gentlemen, Floyd was 36 years old, going on 37, and he still put on an incredible performance to easily win a majority decision. One judge had it to draw up. They should have fired that motherfucker. After beating Canelo, Floyd had two very tough fights against Marcos Madonna. He won both fights, and now at the age of 37, it was time for Floyd to finally Get that fight versus Manny Pacquiao. And on May 2nd, 2015, the fight finally happened. My girlfriend at the time, Vonette, took me to the Milk River uh, Social Club, uh, nightclub in downtown Brooklyn to see this fight. And I easily won $200 from two separate $100 bets from guys at the at, at the office where I was working at, where I was uh, running a... Courier service. And other than one brief moment early in the fight where it looked like Floyd was rocked, he completely dominated Manny. I had Floyd winning 10 out of 12 rounds easily as he made Manny miss all night long. And ladies and gentlemen, if they would have fought 100 times, Floyd would have beaten Manny 100 times. Floyd. Finally. In setting a a pay-per-view record of over 4 million buys. 
defeated Manny Manny Pacquiao to finally, finally gain the recognition as the best fighter of his era of the 21st century. In my opinion, Floyd Mayweather was the fighter of the decade in both 2000, of, of the 2000 to 2009 decade and 2010 to 2019 decade. Floyd defeated Andre Berto in a supposedly final farewell to go 49-0, and and then he came out of retirement to fight the first of many circus fights, not only in his career, but in boxing. His 50th pro fight against UFC legend Conor McGregor. There was people who actually thought Conor McGregor was going to win this fight. August 26, 2017, Floyd played with Conor, carried him before knocking him out in the 10th round, and that would be the final fight of Floyd's illustrious career. Floyd would retire with a record of 50 wins, no losses, 27 knockouts to not only be the greatest fighter of the 21st century, but the second greatest fighter that I've seen over the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, I freestyled this. I hope it was to your, uh, I hope that it was to your liking. Next week, we will recap the Tank Garcia fight. Until then, I want everybody. Oh, and also, I will reveal my greatest fighter of the last 45 years. So until next week, when we talk Tank Garcia recap, and I finally do part one of my greatest fighter of the last 45 years, I want everybody out there to continue to be blessed and be a blessing. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.